Hello, I'm Olivia Enos, Senior Policy Analyst in the Asian Studies Center at the Heritage Foundation, and I'm pleased to bring you our first episode of Season 2 of China Uncovered. Welcome back for listeners that joined us for Season 1, and for new listeners, welcome. Um, China Uncovered is part of our broader China Transparency Project at the Heritage Foundation, and both the project and this series of podcasts are pushing for greater data-heavy transparency for the Chinese Communist Party. And we're doing so by highlighting the work of our friends all across the globe. So for this episode, we're going to be talking about the evolving landscape for non-governmental organizations or NGOs working in China. While the environment for civil society to operate in China has always been particularly difficult, it has gotten worse, arguably, since 2017 when China instituted a new foreign NGO law. This has further complicated the environment that is already quite difficult to operate in just given the system of government and also the respect or the lack thereof for fundamental freedoms and human rights, including freedom of association. To unpack this a little bit more, uh, it's now my pleasure to bring in our guest, Jessica Batke from China File, who I just found out is a fellow Midwesterner, which I love. Um, Jessica is a senior editor at China File, and she previously served as an analyst for the State Department's Bureau of Intelligence and Research. She researches China's domestic political and social affairs and also holds a master's in Asian studies from Stanford University. Jessica, thank you so much for joining us today. It's truly a delight for us to have you joining us. Thanks so much for having me and uh, delighted to be here with a fellow Midwesterner. <laughs> That's great. Um, so to kick us off, can you share a little bit about China File and the work that you all are doing and in particular, the work that you're doing on the China NGO project. Sure, I'm happy to. Um, China File is an online magazine. Uh, it's housed at the Asia Society Center on U.S.-China Relations. And it's generally just meant to bring um, a nuanced and um, slightly complicated discussion about U.S.-China relations, about what's going on in China and, and China and the rest of the world. Um, the China NGO project, we started in 2017, um, particularly because China, as you mentioned, had just instituted the foreign NGO law. And the goal of the China NGO project is to track how foreign NGOs are able to navigate that landscape, um, you know, monitor their challenges, monitor their successes, uh, and help the community kind of understand what's going on, right? Help them make better decisions about how they should be or not be um, engaging in China. Um, one of the things that we're doing still on a weekly and monthly uh, basis, even though you know it's been four years since this law has been implemented, and, and we've learned a lot, and there's a lot of things that I, I think we can say um, have settled out. You know, we we kind of know how the environment looks for a lot of NGOs. Um, a thing that we're doing. To, to make sure that we're staying on top of it and to give people the latest information is that every week we update um, information about the NGOs that have been able to open representative offices in China or file for temporary activities in China. And I'm happy to talk about what those those two terms mean. Mm -hmm. um, so we, we pull that information, we translate it, and we put it up every week so people can check in Chinese or in English about what's going on. Um, and we also have, um, for you know, NGOs thinking about getting in China, we have a pretty extensive FAQ section on our website 
that helps them, again, try to navigate what the different rules and regulations are if they want to get involved in China. Wow, that's really helpful and such an interesting project. It seems like it's especially necessary after 2017 and the introduction of the new law. So that's really helpful. Um, So one of the things that we highlight in our 2021 China Transparency Report is the need for more research on the extent to which civil society has space to operate in China. Can you talk a little bit more about the operating environment and what it's like for NGOs in China, especially vis-a-vis this new foreign NGO law? Yeah, I think it's really important to to unpack, um, you know, the way that the foreign NGO law had effects on two different communities, right? <laughs> One is obviously on the foreign NGO or the international nonprofit community. That's it's in the name of the law. It's, it does what it says on the tin. Um, but less appreciated also is is the impact on domestic NGOs. So I will mm. t- treat each of those in turn, right? So um, the foreign NGO law. Uh, has in some ways, you know, made it a lot clearer what is permissible in China to do as a foreign NGO law. Um, And that doesn't necessarily have to be a bad thing, right? Um, There were plenty of organizations that were operating in a gray space. Uh, They were never sure if what they were doing was was acceptable or not. Um, You know, that gray space was really useful for a lot of organizations. It allowed them to kind of push the boundaries and and do things that, um, you know, maybe maybe wouldn't necessarily get approved uh, by Chinese government authorities. Uh, But, you know, the the law basically put down really clear rules and regulations about what's permitted, what's not here, you know, what what the uh, process is for working formally in China. Um, And so in that way, you know, there's these codified rules and regulations that that you can follow. what that also has done, again, is stripped away that gray space for people to kind of work in in, uh, in areas that maybe the Chinese government's not too excited about. And it's also um, made it really hard if you work on certain issues. So, for example, if you work on um, LGBT issues or if you work on human rights, if you work on uh, ethnic minority concerns, it's, it's a lot harder to get your projects approved. The onus of implementing or managing all these foreign NGOs was taken away from the Ministry of Civil Affairs. That's who used to manage this. And after the 2017 foreign NGO law, the Ministry of Public Security is now in charge of managing all of these foreign NGOs. And that's really important. You know, uh, the, it, the who is the institutional keeper of this framework is going to affect you know, how they see what NGOs are doing. Uh, and I would argue that putting it under the control of the Ministry of Public Security really puts a, a security, national security lens on everything that NGOs are doing, mm-hmm. even if what they're doing is pretty banal or benign. I guess I shouldn't say banal. Um, <laughs> so it, it has made it harder for certain groups to work there. Um, and it and it probably has limited the choices of groups that are working there, right? They probably, um, you know, I know in some cases have had to modify some of their their work plans so that they can continue to be in China. Um, Unless, obviously, this foreign NGO law, like I said, has has impacted domestic uh, NGOs. And that's because, you know, the the foreign NGO law with combined with another law that was implemented around the same time, uh, the charity law, um, it's really constrained domestic groups' ability to get foreign funding. Um, So if you are a domestic group, you have to be formally registered uh, through this new system. And if you can't get registered, you have no formal basis for which to try to get international fundraising. And similarly, on the foreign NGO, like the side of foreign NGOs, um, they are not permitted 
to give funding to individuals or to groups that are not formally registered in China. So it's really cut away a lot of the opportunities for domestic NGOs to get funding outside of China. And in both of these cases, I think, you know, for both foreign and domestic NGOs, the government really has stripped, successfully stripped away those gray spaces in which a lot of these organizations previously operated. And it's directed resources towards fields of work and projects that the government prefers. So it's still very much, you know, a top-down approach to civil society. Wow. Yeah. I'm I'm so glad that you highlighted, um, you know, the impact that this has on particular types of work, um, that there are essentially like whole buckets of issues that the Chinese Communist Party doesn't want civil society, doesn't want ordinary citizens um, to even be really coming in contact with. I think this is especially relevant for ethnic minorities. Um, and I noticed I was I was briefly looking through some of the work before we hopped on here to record the podcast. And it seems like especially for ethnic minorities and especially in the case of Uyghurs in Xinjiang, that this is particularly true, that there are such strong restrictions for NGOs to operate in that space. Um, but I don't I don't want to take us too far <laughs> afield here. Um, so our, our China Uncovered is very focused on highlighting data driven initiatives of which, um, you know, this work is definitely fits into that category. So can you talk a little bit about the methodology or methodologies that you apply in order to analyze data for the China NGO project? Yeah. So um, as I mentioned earlier, the primary thing that we're doing is gathering data every week from the Ministry of Public Security website. As I said, they're the ones that are administrating all of this. So, you know, they put up every week who's officially registered a representative office. So that just means who's who has a permanent presence uh, in China and who has filed for temporary activities. And temporary activities are, you know, if you're a group that doesn't want to open an office permanently in China, you can get permission to do a set activity. And there's all these rules that go along with it. You have to have a Chinese partner unit. You have to do all these things. Um, so they, the Ministry of Public Security puts that data up. Um, and, you know, every week we pull it down, we translate it. And then every month I also do um, a number of, you know, do some number crunching on that data to see what we can learn about, you know, who is able to work there, what they're working on, and where in China they're, they're working. But I really want to stress here that a big part of the story of the China NGO project and, and why we kind of ended up um, focusing so heavily on this official data is because, you know, there's a lot of information and data that we don't have. Mm-hmm. Um, and we don't have a clear and comprehensive sense of who was working in China, you know, which NGOs were working in China before the law went into effect. Um, we don't have a lot of on-the-record stories from foreign NGOs about their experiences, you know, before and after the law or perhaps even deciding to leave China because of the law. Um, and this is all because either, the, you know, there wasn't good data collection before or, you know, in the, in the case of, you know, these on the record stories, people really understandably don't want to jeopardize their ability to work in China now mm-hmm. or in the future. Right. So they don't necessarily uh, want to say anything that, that, that could affect um, that ability. So a lot of the data gathering efforts here 
are really centered on you know knowing that we have these gaps. So what I what, what I'm trying to do is take the data that we do have available to us, which is official data, right? It only shows what's been successful. It does not show any unsuccessful attempts to register mm-hmm. or file. Uh, I try to learn from what we can, but be really really clear, you know, with everybody about what we don't have, and see if we can kind of look at the gaps, uh, peer into those gaps a little bit and read into what's not there, right? So a lot of what I think uh, our value is, is trying to categorize, this is a little bit more of an art than a science, I'll be honest, <laughs> trying to categorize what fields of work these NGOs are you know, working in. This isn't something that comes from the MPS website. This is something that we apply. Um, and that's, it, it's in an effort to try to keep in mind, hey, they're, they're, did used to be, you know, a bunch of organizations working on rule of law. Uh, and now there's really not. But you have to, like, build that into your mental model and into your, your data categorization scheme so that you can notice what's not there. Yeah. Uh, my colleague, Dean Chang, is always saying that sometimes what's not said is more important than what is. And it seems like you've definitely applied that type of a lens um, to some of the work that you're doing in this space. I am curious, what trends um, does the data on NGOs and especially on their temporary activities show? Um, And have these trends changed or shifted at all in the midst of the pandemic? Yeah, we saw a pretty big drop off in the total number of temporary activity filings uh, Mm -hmm. that I would I would attribute largely to COVID. Right. So um, between 2019 and 2020, uh, there was about a 20% drop-off in temporary activity filings. And if the numbers are keep going the way that they're going now this year, we may even see a, a larger decrease between 2020 and 2021. So, you know, what are these numbers? In, in 2019, there was about 1,000 temporary activity filings. Um, and this year so far, I've only counted around 400. Um, no. And you know, that sounds like a lot. And, and in some ways it is, but I always want to remind people that, you know, how, how big China is, right? How many people are there? Um, and I, I have to assume that if there were no such strictures, there'd be far more foreign um, international nonprofits choosing to, to do more than a thousand activities here in China. <laughs> um, you know, back to the COVID thing, it's really, really hard to know whether these temporary activities are going to kind of pick up back to the pace that they were at pre-COVID. Um, you know, it's easy to attribute this to COVID. People don't want to travel right now or they don't, you know, again, understandably don't want to travel or can't travel. It's really hard to get in and out of China. Uh, it's really hard to get in and out of the U.S., to be fair. <laughs> um, so, you know, this is all totally understandable. What what I don't know is, is this... Um, is COVID going to sort of serve as a forcing mechanism for some groups to decide, okay, we want to, we definitely want to go back to China or no, we definitely don't. It's not worth it anymore. Mm. I don't have a sense of that. Um, and I don't think we're going to know for a little while. Uh, but looking more broadly at temporary activities, as I was mentioning earlier, it's really clear that the Chinese government has been pretty successful in channeling foreign money, um, this money or uh, resources from international nonprofits into preferred areas. You know, a ton of these temporary activities are focused on, you know, education, whether that's primary education or, um, you know, scholarships for elite universities, a, a 
just a really large amount of these temporary activities are focused on things like that. Um, and what's really interesting in terms of temporary activities is that a lot of them um, are happening from groups that are based in Hong Kong. Uh, it's Hong Kong, by far and away, is the place from which you know uh, the most temporary activities are filed. And I'm really going to be interested to see if um, the national security law in Hong Kong mm. might change this in the future. It may, it may or may not. Um, again, a lot of the activities are education based. They're what you know the government would consider safe. Um, so it may not impact it, but that is something that I'm going to be watching going forward. Um, and I know you asked about temporary activities, but I just want to mention really quickly, because I do think this is important and it's not something people usually think about. Um, if you look at representative offices, again, these groups that have decided they want to have a permanent president presence in China. Um, one thing to note is that about 50 percent of those that have been approved and set up offices in China are, are trade or industry associations. Um, and they're obviously legitimate nonprofits doing legitimate nonprofit work. I just like to flag that for people because I think that when people think about NGOs, they think about human rights or, you know, rule of law or <laughs> things like that. Um, and there are a lot of these groups doing nonprofit, legitimate nonprofit work, but it's, you know, on behalf of the aluminum industry in Europe or the almond board in California or whatever. Um, and so I think those groups are probably doing okay under this new law because, you know, they're business focused, right? They're industry focused. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think you hit the nail on the head when you said that, you know, a lot of the NGOs that seem to have greater access in China are those who are working on issues that are important to the Chinese Communist Party. They aren't those traditional issues that you would think, oh yeah, this is what an NGO does. Um, I found that really fascinating when, when looking through the China File website. Um, so in last season, uh, we definitely focused on the plight of Uyghurs in Xinjiang. In fact, we brought in Adrian Sens from the Victims of Communism Memorial Foundation to shed some light on um, the atrocities that are taking place there. Um, and as the CCP continues to commit those atrocities, um, you know, a lot of times they are denying accusations or they're painting what's happening in Xinjiang in a light that's more favorable to them. Um, what does the data from the China NGO project show regarding the landscape for NGOs operating in or near the Xinjiang region? Yeah, uh, you are not going to be surprised to learn that it's really, <laughs> really hard to try and do projects in the Xinjiang Uyghur Autonomous Region if you're a foreign NGO. You know, the NGOs that I can see that are doing projects there, again, this is based on the government data, you know, they're not really focused on you know, issues that are explicitly tied to to um, someone's ethnicity or religion, right? Uh, the, the activities that are there tend to be about health about education. And there's a couple, mm -hmm. you know, climate related projects. But, you know, overall, the number of projects there is is really small, right? So out of there's been nearly 3,700 temporary activities that people have filed since 2017. 
Um, so that's over the last four years. Uh, but less than 50 of them have specifically mentioned, you know, called out Xinjiang as like the place where they're going to be doing that work. OK, I'm not counting here. There's a bunch of temporary activities that say all of China, um, which I doubt, you know, they actually go to every single village in China and carry them out. So I don't I don't count those here. But but, you know, the ones that list specific places where they're going to carry out work, only only 50 of those have called out doing work in the Xinjiang Uyghur Autonomous Region over the last four years. And I don't have any more specific data on what you know domestic NGOs are doing. Like I said, we don't have um, d- domestic NGOs have been cut off, and, and they're under pressure as well. But I have to assume you know it's also really really difficult for domestic NGOs trying to work in that space. And I assume they're they're balancing similar you know choices where if they want to continue working, they probably need to do it in one of these approved areas. Yeah, well, I mean, it makes sense that the CCP wants to cover up, you know, what many consider to be genocide and crimes against humanity. And I agree with you. I think you're you're probably right that the domestic NGO landscape is um, equally and arguably, if not more restricted, since the CCP really doesn't want other people throughout China knowing what's happening to the Uyghurs. Um so you, you've already touched on this a little bit, but I, I do want to make sure that we cover this specifically. Um, what are some of the unique challenges at play when you collect data on China or the Chinese government's practices? And are there any challenges that you think differ from traditional data collection? Yeah, so so the most obvious one here and, and the most troublesome is data that just disappears, right? And, <laughs> you know, it's not like... I want to be really clear. I, I, it's not like I think, for example, the U.S. government is always great about, you know, providing public data, uh, keeping it up to date, making it really easy to download any of that. Like, I, I don't think that's true. Uh, but there isn't the same sort of concerted effort to pull public data offline, um, you know, for any reason. But, you know, China often, if for example, you talked about Adrian Zenz. I know a lot of the procurement notices that he was using to show what was happening in the region were pulled offline once he publicized them. Um, And it's not uncommon for entire databases to be pulled down or chunks of them to be pulled down. So in a separate project that I was doing at one point, uh, I was trying to get all the data about the Chinese leadership down to the county level. They had a official, it was on the people.com.cn website. I was so excited uh, when someone pointed it out to me. It had leaders down to the county level. Uh, so, and they, you know, you can tell we were doing a project about women and governance. So we were using it to try to figure out, you know, how many of these people are women. Uh, but by, between when someone showed it to me and when I like got my act together to start scraping it, uh, they had pulled it down and they'd taken all the county level people offline. Wow. Um, yeah. So the website's still there and it's still a really good website, but it only goes down um, to the first, you know, the top couple layers of government. Uh, and so it's things like that that, you know, I have no idea why that information is gone. <laughs> I don't know why it's it's bad for people to know about who the county leaders are throughout China. And, you know, they have it right. They have an organization department. The CCP's organization department certainly has all that information. Um so it's things like that that make it really, really hard when you're working on China and um, make all of us really paranoid about, you know, uh, documenting everything we find as soon as we find it, because you never know when it's going to go away. And I think another thing, and, and this isn't unique necessarily to China, but I think it is particularly problematic or particularly pronounced in 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 the China context, is there's really not 
a presumption that data belongs to the public, even if it's public data, right? There's there's often not an effort to make it easily downloadable, uh, you know, easy to use for your own research purposes, right? And that includes both the the Ministry of Public Security's foreign NGO website, which I spend far too much time on, but it's also all sorts of other sites, right? Like even if the information's there, they kind of make you work to get it. Uh, in large quantities. There's, I'll give another example um, for any other data nerds out there. Uh, I was scraping, I was trying to get all the information for administrative divisions in China. So this is just really basic information about, okay, within a province, how many counties are there in that county? How many townships are there? And that, you know, that sort of thing. And what are their names? You can't just go to a website and download that information. Um, so once a year, I have to go and scrape and like my, you know, have my robot click next on the page to get all the information because um, it would take too long for a human to do it. So, you know, that kind of thing, again, that's not totally unique to China, but it is it is particularly pronounced. Mm. And out of curiosity, have you received any reaction or responses from the Chinese government to China Files research and findings? I mean, you mentioned like Adrian having his his data yeah. once he made it public pulled. Have you guys had similar situations? You know, not not really. Um, I haven't been back to China in a while. Um, you know, I I know that the the Ministry of Public Security or not probably not at the ministry level. I'm not that important. But people working in the in the MBS's foreign NGO office definitely know about the website. And I had talked to some of them at one point. Um, but I haven't been back. And, you know, uh, we're not we're not texting each other all the time or anything. So I haven't gotten, <laughs> I haven't gotten any any responses in a while. Yeah. Um, so many of our listeners are a part of the policymaking community or are policymaking adjacent. Um, what areas of, um, you know, China's human rights violations or the NGO space are under-researched or merit additional attention, in your opinion? Yeah, this is a really good question because obviously a few years ago I would have said what's happening in the Uyghur region needs a lot yeah. more attention. Um, and, and I would have said that, I think, you know, even in 2015, 2016, before before the current wave of of extreme repression, um, so I'm really heartened that issues there are getting high level attention. I think it's one of the gravest, you know, intentional mass scale human rights abuses that are is going on in the world, and we totally should be focused on it. Um, I think it's also important to, you know, stay aware that there are other non ethnic Han communities, uh, you know, Tibetan and Mongolia being really salient examples, but there are others. Um, and, you know, to the extent that the CCP feels those communities are threatening um, to its continued rule, it's really important to continue to watch what happens in those areas, um, even if right now it doesn't look like it's as dire as it is in the Uyghur region. And I don't say that I'm not what I'm not trying to say. I want to be really clear. I'm not trying to say I think the Uyghur region is like a test and they're going to spread you know, these policies necessarily everywhere. I just, you know, even if that doesn't happen, it's still worth remembering that there are these other communities that are having trouble. Um, but I also think, you know, one of the things that it's easy to overlook are sort of the quotidian day-to-day -day human rights issues that, you know, they're really hard for us to see at this point at a granular level because it's getting harder and harder for independent media, and that includes both domestic Chinese media and, you know, international media to report in China, right? Like mm -hmm. abuse at the hands of the police 
or censorship or just sort of like daily abuses of power. These things are happening all the time. Um, and you see some of them bubble up um, on, on Chinese social media. Um, but it's really kind of hard to keep a, a bead on those in any sort of um, systematic way because so many people are unable to report or do that kind of work from China, right? And to be really clear, those sorts of day-to-day abuses of power happen everywhere and including, you know, including the U.S. Uh, but the difference is that it's easier here to shine a light on them uh, because, you know, you have a, a, a robust and independent media that can report. So I wish I had a, a more specific answer. I just think it's important for us to stay aware of the fact that decreasing access for international media and a robust, you know, um, space for a robust domestic investigative media um, means that sort of day-to-day abuses of power and human rights violations are probably flying under the radar. Yeah, you know, no, I'm so glad that you highlighted all those issues. Like you, I've been really heartened to see the amount of attention and really critical research that has been devoted to really pulling back the veil on what's happening with Uyghurs. And I think that a lot of the research and energy surrounding Uyghurs, um, you know, can provide some models for how to do data-driven work um, to highlight human rights cases, not only in China, but, um, yeah. you know, around the world too. Yeah. Um, and, and in our China Transparency Report, something that we found was that there is really a lack of research when it comes to Tibet these days. Um, And so hopefully there will be greater efforts channeled in that direction. So I'm so glad that you highlighted um, that. So uh, to conclude, um, I would love to hear from you what action you would like to see in response to the findings of China Files work and reports. Um, And what are some of the most effective ways that you believe policymakers can actually apply some of the findings from your data? Yeah, I feel like my my answer is going to be a little disappointing here because, you know, we are um, we're a journalistic outfit. So we don't have a particular goal in mind for what policymakers should do with the information. We see our role as, you know, collecting the best information that we can, trying to do the best we can to make sure it's accurate uh, and provide it back out to, you know, the nonprofit community, to researchers and scholars and to policymakers so people can make you know, the most informed decisions that that they can. That's a great answer. And I think it really does highlight to the resilience of um, like the U.S.'s own civil society and and of the international community's respect for civil society. Like when you do respect civil society, when you respect the work of NGOs, um, every group can have a different goal and a different aim. Um, And that helps to improve um, both average an average person's understanding of really complicated issues, but also for policymakers and people in the business community as well. Um, So thank you so much, Jessica, for for giving our listeners a better understanding of China's lack of transparency, especially um, in the NGO space, and for helping us to understand that context a lot better. Um, So happy to be here. Thanks so much. 
Yeah. So I've no doubt that our listeners found this as helpful as I did. And for those eager to learn more, um, please be sure to check out our China Transparency Project website, as well as the 2021 China Transparency Report that we released in June of this year. Um, I am going to include a link to the website and to the report in the show notes for this podcast. Um, And hopefully the website and the report can serve as, um, you know, additional resources that can augment hopefully what you've already learned during this conversation and that it can highlight some more data-driven research that's documenting the activities of the Chinese Communist Party. Thanks once again to our listeners for tuning in to China Uncovered. This is a podcast that's dedicated to pulling back the veil on the activities of the Chinese Communist Party. In two weeks from now, we're going to bring you another episode where we're going to be discussing China's activities in the military and security space. So a little bit of a a different beat than our conversation today. Um, And last but not least, don't forget to subscribe to China Uncovered on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or your favorite podcast app. And if you enjoyed this show, please be sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We're looking forward to having you join us next time. China Uncovered is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and John Pop.